Acts chapter 2, we've got a lot of text to get through today. 14 through 41 is where we're at. 14 through 41. Acts 2, 14 through 41. I'm going to read this entire chunk of text, which should be a beautiful thing to us. Uh, You come not, hopefully, to hear my opinions, not to hear me pontificate, uh, but you come because God has spoken and what He says is meaningful, powerful. It's life to us. So I'm going to read Acts 2.14. love for you to follow along. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, a great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, 
Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Oh God, you're good. Though you dwell in unapproachable light, though in many ways you are incomprehensible, though your character and your ways are inexhaustible, you have spoken. Thank you, God, that you've not remained hidden, but you are a God who reveals, who longs to be known, who desires to be seen as for us and loving us and caring for us. And God, we long to be people of your word. We don't want to come as critics today. We don't want to come as people who come alongside and just sort of cozy up to your word in an academic exercise God, we surrender ourselves. We surrender ourselves to your truth, to your ways. We commit ourselves in neediness before you. God, I confess to you that all who have come here this morning, we are blind apart from the sight that you might give. All who hear my voice, me included, we are deaf. We are deaf unless you would dig ears for us by your Spirit. So God, help us stirring us a desire for Yourself and give us grace to walk in obedience for what You reveal. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a chunky piece of text. Uh, It's a lengthy piece of text and some of you may tongue-in-cheek sort of say like, well, of course, it's a guy preaching, right? (laughs) Right? Like... That was mean of you to think that, but he's, uh, he's preaching, right? It's a chunky piece of text, and you might ask the question, how are we going to summarize this, and where are we going to go with it, and how are we going to learn for what, from what Peter's doing at the end of Acts chapter 2? Uh, we have started a series in Acts that we called Unconquered. It's unconquered because I'm going to say it again and again and again and again. History has shown that what God began to do and did and continues to do through Jesus Christ is not meaningless, was not in vain, but it matters immensely. We are not unconquered. We are not triumphalistic. Four oaks could pass away from the earth. Lance's voice could be silenced. We could not exist. Civilization as we know it right now could change. All those things could change. But what is unchanging is the truth of the Word of God specifically as it is expressed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Gospel is unconquered. That's what we're seeing. That's what we're trying to figure out. And Peter, in this part of chapter 2, begins to give voice, begins to give words to the unconquered Gospel. That's what's happening here. I'm going to bring you back one page. I've been thinking about, and when you take a big chunk of text like this, you, got, you say to yourselves, how do I, how do I say to ourselves, how do I, how do I frame it? What do, what do we look through? Where's a, where's a lens that we can kind of look through? It's like when you're a little kid and you get one of those awesome cereal boxes with a secret message on the back. Anyone else love these kind of things? It's a blank back of the cereal box and you think there must be something here. And there, right at the bottom of your Captain Crunch are decoder glasses, right? You whip those things out and you put them on. And the frame around your eyes gives you a lens to look through, to interpret. In the back of the box, it says something lame like, um, go to school, kids. Like, drugs are for thugs. Or something like that, you know what I mean? Um, I, you guys are moved right now, aren't you? Uh, 
I could get an inspirational cereal box job. This, the glasses frame how to see things. And I want to use a verse, two verses specifically in chapter 1, to frame what's been happening in chapter 2. Is that fair? Can we, can we go put on the glasses in chapter 1 and then come back to chapter 2? That's my goal. I want to dig under the Captain Crunch. We'll go back one chapter just to the left. Acts 1, 7 and 8, I think gives us a little bit of a framework. Jesus gives some instruction and I'm gonna, hopefully it's a help to us. So verse 7, we find Jesus responding to the disciples. They want the kingdom to come. He says this to them. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. And verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is, is making promises is what He's doing. Jesus is putting Himself on the line. He's declaring to them, this is what you ought to wait for and see. Because when Jesus promises something, it happens, right? It's like the Knowles playing football with me in town. <laughs> it's 20-0. It's a guaranteed thing. You're welcome. It's 20-0. Jesus promises, and when Jesus promises, there's a good, 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 right at 100% chance that it's going to come, come to fruition, right? He says a couple things. One of them is helpful for us. The first part in verse 7, he kind of does a little bit of a theological smackdown on his disciples a little bit. Uh, he does this often, and I love when he does it because I need it. He basically tells them, look, some things are not going to be revealed. Isn't that what he says to them? The disciples ask in verse 6, when's the kingdom going to come? And I doubt they're asking for very uh, selfless reasons. They've been thinking to themselves, like, for three years we followed this guy around and we had no food and no money and all our fishing income is gone and we got dust all over us and people think we're weird. I can't wait. Like, the kingdom's going to come in. I'm going to be eating some grapes, sitting on a throne. I can't wait for this. And so Jesus just tells them a very, very solid theological answer. He says to them, you cannot know. You will not know. And this teaches us something about God that's helpful. It helps me sleep at night. It might help you sleep at night as well. Some things we will not know. Have you experienced this in life yet? Anyone? Anyone have every question they've ever asked, theological or life or otherwise, answered? Of course not, right? Of course not. And we find from Jesus that there's some things that simply God has no interest in revealing. God, by the nature of Him being God, reserves the right to be a mystery novel writer who does not finish the book for us in this life. He never pulls back the veil. He just doesn't. There are questions that we sit with. Why? What? When, God? The answer, quite honestly, sometimes the best Sometimes the best empathy that you can have, the most theological answer you can have with friends when you look them in the eyes to say something like this, I'm so sorry, I don't know. I don't know. So there's some things that we do not know. But there wouldn't be much, wouldn't be much of a book of Acts, right, if that's what this book was about. The book of Acts, the rest of it, is not, a, not just about what Jesus says won't be revealed, it's about what is revealed. Some things God has promised and they come about so that we can read about them and learn about them. In this verse 8, there's two basic promises there that I think are a framework for chapter 2. The first part of the promise, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Do you remember the beginning of, uh, of Acts chapter 2? Spoiler alert, power comes. Sound like a mighty rushing wind. 
the group probably terrified. Is that a tornado that's coming? Like, what, what is that? The first part of chapter 2 reveals and fulfills the first part of Jesus' promise. What I want to frame for you, this is what I want, to, I want to say, I want to suggest to you that starting in verse 14, starting in verse 14, Peter, when he stands up, he stands up and embodies the fulfillment of the second part of the promise. In other words, he answers the question, what will it, be look, what will it look like for them to be witnesses? Remember, Jesus promised two things. You'll receive power. Second part of the promise, you'll be my witnesses. You'll receive power. You'll be my witnesses. And starting in verse 14, we have, I believe, a very, very clear example of Peter showing what it's going to be like to be a witness. It's as in effect, the Holy Spirit comes, He asks the most galactic, universal, big, resounding, can I get a witness in all, in all of history? Right? This is God, can I get a witness? Right? And Peter stands and gives us an example of what it looks like to witness, to witness to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're finding and that's the framework that we're going to use uh, for the rest of this particular text. I want to make one point about witness first and then in a moment I'm going to show you a little bit of a diagram that we made that will help, I think. The first thing I want to note is that Peter stands up is fitting for his character, but he stands up and he fulfills the very thing that God has said that he's going to be. And in a sense, the Holy Spirit is sort of sanctifying Peter, right? Everything about his character from all the way back in the day, right? Second grade felt board adventures, right? What are people who maybe, if you don't know Christianity very well, what do we know about Peter? If you had to describe him, what's Peter like of all the disciples? He's kind of like a doofus, right? Is that a fair way to say it? He's just always shoving his foot in his mouth, right? He's dramatic. He would have, he, he's like a, he's a thespian. Everything he does is just like huge and big and bold. Everything he says is just is like, you know, like, you remember when Jesus, we said in John 13, Jesus girds himself to wash the disciples' feet. He goes to wash them and who's the one? Who's the one who's like, what does he say? Oh, Jesus, No! No, you won't wash my feet. Never. You would never, ever do that, right? Can you see him just over the top, just full of emotion and brash, the one who has to reject Jesus serving him? And then like in one sentence, what happens? Jesus says, oh, well, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And all of a sudden, Peter's like this. Now he's just like undressing. He's like, wash me all. Like wash every part, head to toe. Right, Peter's this ball of emotions, this range, this brashness. You don't see the rest of the disciples jumping out of the boat when Jesus is walking across the water, right? No one else is jumping out of the boat. Peter, it seems like, is that guy. He's like that friend who doesn't know how to whisper. You ever had, you ever had a friend like that? You, something's, kind of, something's kind of funny. Like you, you really you want to talk to someone about it, but they're right across the room, whatever's happening. You make the mistake of whispering that thing to your friend who then repeats it 50 decibels louder. Oh, what did you say about her shirt? It's terrible? What? Right? That person? Maybe you are that person? Anyone? <laughs> you are? Some of you, both of you might, like if you have a spouse here, you think the other person is that person. I've done that. I apologize publicly, Sarah. I do that all the time. She'll want to whisper things to me. Sometimes it's just us. Like we're trying to work things out. And then I just, somehow I, I just 
repeat it really loudly. What did you say about us fighting? You know, that kind of thing. Isn't that Peter? That's kind of what he's been like. And the Holy Spirit comes, and here's the amazing thing. God fulfills the promise for Peter's life acting through, it seems like, this exact character trait of Peter. If I had to tell the story, right? If all you knew about the disciples was all the stuff that I just said, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and I say, right here at this moment when the church begins, who's going to be the one that will be an example of a witness? I mean, what would it be? 100% people would vote, oh, it's Peter, right? It's Peter. And so I want to say that in some measure, Peter's brash and he's bold, and that's why he stands to speak. But I want you to note the other thing, and that's this fact, that the work of the Spirit is not merely private. The work of the Spirit is not merely private. It leads to public activity. A lot of what the Holy Spirit does beckons us internally. It's that thing when you go to bed at night and you feel terrible about your sin. It's that thing that makes you interested in the Bible for the first time when you thought, man, that's just been a curious book to me forever. It's that thing inside of you that says for some reason when you go to church and you worship and you're with other Christians, you think to yourself, before this just sort of seemed like something I did because my parents brought me, but I really I want to know this Jesus. And all behind that, the Spirit doing silent work. The Spirit is that thing that gives us the fruit of the Spirit, this internal character. And when your spouse is being a Peter, when your kids are on your last nerve, and not just only on your last nerve, they're, they're swinging on it like, like Tarzan right on your last nerve. And the Spirit comes and gives you patience and kindness and joy and self-control and gentleness. There's a lot of inner work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that thing Scripture tells us that pours out the love of God into our souls. That gives us assurance that what Jesus did, He did for you. You come here because you are in Christ. That's the Spirit's work. Individual, inward, sealing, giving us assurance that what Jesus accomplished can be yours. But I want you to stay away from the idea that the Holy Spirit is only an individual thing. When the Spirit comes, He moves them to public witness. And what Peter finds out is, is that to witness, one of the first aspects of it to witness is that he speaks. Words are involved. Words are involved in witness, non-negotiably. This does not mean that all we use is words. Many of you have been fond of a phrase that you've probably heard over time. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. A couple of problems, a couple of problems with that particular quote. One is it's probably fabricated. It's probably made up. St. Francis of Assisi probably never said that. It's not found in any of his works. The other aspect of it is that it's, it's, it's a little bit narrow. There is a sense in which your life, doing things with integrity, not cheating on your taxes, telling the truth, pursuing covenant faithfulness in your marriage, raising children who love, love God and want to walk in His ways, those testify in some sense. That is a witness to the world. Jesus said it. Live your life in such a way that people see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. But let is, let's never confuse this fact. The witness is not only your life. To witness to the gospel means you will use words. And Peter stands to speak. We proclaim assertions, truth, not faith for faith's sake. We are not asking people to just stir up some sort of vague spirituality inside of them. 
You know, hey, if you just get in touch with your spiritual side, that's good with us. Now we believe there's truth, that Jesus actually came and he lived and he died and he rose again. The gospel needs words. And that's helpful to a guy like me, right? Because I wanted to teach the Bible. I wanted to use words since I was 17. I've prayed on and off throughout all those years, saying, God, would you, would you ever open a door? Would you please put me and my family in a spot where I could use words to proclaim the gospel? And that would be my life. And so I'm excited, right? It's, it's fun to, to point back and say, what does Peter do? The first thing, the Holy Spirit comes, the church is inaugurated. What does Peter do? He preaches. And some of you are thinking to yourselves like, well, yeah, well, this is a short sermon and, and yours are not. But um, I have the Bible behind me on that one as well. Um, I don't know if you noticed uh, toward, the, <clears throat> toward the end of the, the text, did you, say, did you see where it says, with many other words, Peter... Uh, Peter continued to convince them. He continued to exhort them. With many other words, he bore witness. But words, witness involves words. This is what John Stott notes about the book of Acts. He says, Luke is true to his intention of recording what Jesus continued after his ascension to do and to teach. And there's a bunch of technical stuff in here, so I didn't put it on the screen. No fewer than 19 significant Christian speeches occur in this book. No fewer than 19 significant Christian speeches. There's eight by Peter in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 10, 11, and 15. One by Stephen and James. Stephen, not an apostle, longest sermon recorded. And then that's not even counting Paul, who at least five times gives a sermon in 13, 14, 17, 20, and 28. And then four times defends his apostleship and defends the gospel before the authorities of Rome in chapters 22 to 26. Here's how Stott summarizes it. This is what I want to remind you of, that the, to witness uses words. Approximately 20% of the book of Acts is devoted to speeches by Peter and Paul. And if you add Stephen's speech in, the percentage rises to about 25% of the book. 25% of the book is proclamation of the gospel with words. I think that should be instructive for us. It should help press us on to want to, when we can, move past just a life. I, say, I, don't, I don't say just a life to minimize it, but there's more fullness. A life of integrity is beautiful. A life of honesty is sometimes all we can live out faithfully before people. But Peter used words. Let me give you this little diagram. Uh, there's a professor at RTS who used triangles for everything. He used them very differently uh, than what this is going to be. Uh, but this week, uh, Dave Harvey and I talked through this, and Dave was like, I'm thinking of a triangle, and maybe you could use it. And it might be helpful. Um, this is what we're going to say witnesses in general, okay? And I think we got the little triangle thing. You'll see how fancy we are. This is like PowerPoint, PowerPoint circa 2002. Look at that. It's pretty hot, right? <laughs> pretty hot. So, and just wait though, there's animations. You guys remember those? So witness in general, if you want to get your, hanger, your, your arms around what Peter's showing us in, at the end of Acts chapter 2, witness is at least three things, okay? Witness is concerned with the Bible. That's the first thing we're going to see. Witness is concerned with the Bible. And in a moment, I'm going to show you where in this text that comes up. To be a faithful witness, to be a Christian who has the Holy Spirit and then wants to be the fulfillment of the promise that will be witness, there must be a commitment and a concern for the words of the Bible, of Scripture, to let God speak 
is not a minor task of the Christian. Second part, though, is that Peter's not content simply with the Bible. He points the Bible somewhere, and that's he points to the gospel. Now, I know we use, we use gospel here, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a churchy word. Gospel kind of reeks of a good old-fashioned religious language, and so I want to I boil it down as much as I possibly can. Peter is not content to teach academically from the Bible. He teaches toward Jesus Christ from the Bible. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the point of Scripture. He said it himself in Luke 24. The point of the Bible is Jesus. And Peter is relentless to get there. And then finally, it's not enough to just let God speak and let Him speak concerning His Son, but there's a call involved in witness. There's a sense of a call. There's an understanding theologically of God's call, but more than that, we must have a concern and empathy and impetus and a pleading behind our witness. We don't present information coldly. We don't submit an essay for peer review and just do whatever you want with it. Peter pleads with those present to respond, to respond to the gospel. So I'm going to walk through these three, and hopefully I'll make it clear enough so that it's helpful. Let me show you how Peter wants to and drives at Scripture. Do you know the crazy thing that just happened, right? The crazy thing that just happened, the Spirit came in power, and they're all speaking in languages that people hear in their own tongue. And it's been so miraculous and so filled with wonder that all these people come, and the only explanation that some of those who are mocking can come up with is these people are drunk, right? These people are like eight o'clock game tailgating since the morning drunk, right? This is, this is like serious rush week frat house drunk. That's what they, the only thing they can come up with, right? There's this miraculous thing that happens and Peter stands up to explain the phenomenon that has just taken place. The amazing thing is he brushes it away in a single sentence. Of course they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning, right? Some of you are like, you don't know some of my friends. <laughs> like, that doesn't, I wouldn't work with them. But he brushes it away. Of course they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. And immediately, what is Peter's impetus? He does not stand to give his opinion. He doesn't stand. The goal of the Christian life is to not go around and find a church where a guy talks enough that you can agree with him and you think like, I like his opinions. It's fun when he pontificates and rants about things, especially current events, right? That's not the goal of the Christian life. Peter is not concerned with asserting himself in that sense. He's concerned with explaining what just took place by pointing them to the Word of God. He immediately opens up. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter is unconcerned with any other explanation. It's interesting to note that Peter took it upon himself not only to go to the Word of God, but he was trained enough in the Word of God to know this. Right? He's trained enough in the Bible to interpret what just happened and say, oh, I, I know. I remember. Joel tells us in the last days, God is going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And so he goes straight to the Word of God. One part of witness, one part of witness is to set aside your shame long enough to let the Bible speak. 
And I say set aside your shame because there's probably very, there's probably very few moments in history where the Bible is, mu- is more maligned than it is now. Right? Has anyone ever felt that where you think to yourself like, oh, I want to say what I believe about the Bible right now, but it just sounds so, sounds so archaic. Seems like there's so much stigma involved. People immediately say, yes, I'd love to talk about Jesus. I had a conversation with a guy on an airplane one time who told me that he loved Jesus. He respected him. He thought he was great. He wanted to live life like Jesus. And then I said, yeah, you know that thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter, and and he cut me off in the middle of it, and he said, no, 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 no. No, I want to talk about Jesus, not the Bible. I don't believe the the Bible's terrible. None of it's true. It's a bad book, right? And later on in the conversation, I just thought, like, where are you getting your information about this Jesus? I I don't know any other source, any other source book. But in that moment, you know, it's very tempting. It's tempting for me to go into my shell and just think to myself, like, yeah, that's so true. To talk about what God says is just so archaic and old school and I can't even go there. There's a sense in which Peter takes it upon himself to interpret, to read, to apply, and to preach the Bible. This is a significant thing. I want to encourage you over and over and over again. Systematic theology is amazing. Telling your experience is great. But there is a fundamental commitment we have. We are nothing as the people of God if we are not people of the Word of God. And we need to make no bones about that. I'm reminded of a very helpful uh, comment from this guy named Charles Spurgeon. He was the first, uh, first dead guy that really served me well. Is anybody, you guys have dead guys that serve you? Dead, dead women? People who wrote and their work was so powerful it continued for the ages. When I was working at a missionary base in northwest Arkansas, I found this little library. These, these dusty sermon books of Spurgeon. So when I was like 18 or 19 years old, I'd find these sermon books and I'd go and I'd like huddle down after lunch and just reading sermons. And I was really, really began to be moved by Spurgeon. And then later on, I wrote, I read a, a something that he was dealing with. Apparently, people maligning Scripture was not brand new to us. It's not like our culture is the first to ask these questions. Someone asked him one time, uh, Charles, how do, you, how do you defend the Bible? You've given your life to teaching it. How do you defend the Bible? How do you defend the Bible? I'm sure you've heard this before a million different ways, right? The comment from Spurgeon at the time, it's been accredited to him, and he said a lot of things, so who knows where, where and if and when. But I like the story, so don't bother me with facts, right? Spurgeon said, Spurgeon said, I defend the Bible much the same way that I would defend a lion, right? I let it out of the cage. <laughs> That's what I do. I don't, I don't take it upon myself to stand in front of the lion and dance around and, and make excuses There's a sense in which the best defense of the Word of God is to let it out. And so right through, cut all the way through, all of the maligning and all of the questioning and all of the doubting and say, yes, I totally understand concerns about the Bible. What if we studied John 3, though? Let's go for it. Should we read it? Should we read it together? Should we see what happens? Do you know how many amazing conversion stories happen with this simple fact? I started reading the Word of God. There's a confidence that Peter has that everything that's taking place must take place because the Bible said so. Jesus loves me, this I know. Right? For the Bible tells me so. You know this, you know this song. That's Peter's, Peter's place. That's where he's at. All these things happen. Later on he's going to say, you know why Jesus raised from the dead? He had to. He had to be raised from the dead because the Bible said he was going to be raised from the dead. That's why. What the Scripture says happens. That's the conviction of Peter. And of course, it's borne out. What happens after he preaches the Word of God? 
It says the people and all those who were gathered and heard these words, they were cut to the heart. You do not need to rack your brain trying to find a way to convict people concerning the gospel. Let the word of God out. A commitment to the Bible. That's what we see in Peter. Second thing, not a Bible generically. He does not have a commitment to the Bible generically. He has a commitment to the Bible which points to Jesus Christ. He is not like the Bible professors at the University of North Dakota where I was at, where they knew the Scripture. They thought it was interesting. As an anthropological work, it was great. Oh, look at the literature. Look at the genres here. How astounding. This is amazing, right? They, they came upon it coldly. Peter knows that the Bible has a message, a singular message, and that is this, that in Jesus Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. At least five times, at least five times, starting in verse 22, Peter is explicit. This Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus. We do not seek to dispense Bible information for the sake of theism. Does that make sense? We don't want to just convince people vaguely and generally that a spiritual force is out there somewhere. We need people to meet Jesus Christ and to be found in Him. There is no hope in merely coming to a position that says, I think there must be a God out there somewhere. Scripture tells us there's no other name given amongst men, right? Under heaven, by which we must be saved. The Bible tells the story of Jesus. He is the beginning and the middle and the end. In verse 22, we see Peter committed. He's committed to telling the story of Jesus. First, he tells the story of his life. Verse 22, this Jesus who was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In verse 22, we see Peter tells the story again of Jesus' life. Do you remember what Jesus did while he lived? Perfect righteousness on your behalf. Verse 23, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus died. He was crucified and killed. The death of Jesus is on Peter's lips. And what it meant, the death of Jesus was significant. He doesn't leave it there. Verse 24, the resurrection of Jesus. God raised him up. This whole section is ferociously centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. To witness, to be faithful in witness is to be relentlessly, persistently Jesus-oriented. It's not enough to simply speak truth or study the Bible. To study the Bible is to get at the heart of the Bible, Jesus Christ Himself, the living Word of God, that He would dwell in the hearts of those whom you come in contact with. And that is what Peter is after. That's what Peter's after. We're going to move toward wrapping it up. The last thing is this idea of call. We've seen Peter's commitment to the Bible. We've seen that he drives the Bible somewhere. He drives it somewhere. It's not study for study's sake. But also, call. Preaching is not an indifferent reciting of facts, right? It's not a mere academic exercise. It's not a suggestion. Jesus did not come to the earth and say, here's my concern. I just want to be numbered amongst one of the many great possibilities of holy men in the history of the world. 
Jesus came preaching a message that said something essentially like this. If you are not with me, you are against me. You know that there's no hope. Do you speak to people concerning your faith? Do you bring up the Bible? Do you talk about Jesus in a way that reckons with the claim that the Gospel makes on them? Doesn't pure empathy for human souls move you to say that if you die in your sins, you will be lost forever? Peter is not speaking as much as he's preaching and he's pleading. He's pleading with them. He knows that the Word of God is powerful and active. He's telling them, hear these words. Listen. Let the house of Israel be certain that this Jesus, God made Him Lord and Christ. He lifts up His voice. He calls to them. Let this be known. There's a kind of pleading. A 2 Corinthians 5 sort of urging. We regard no one according to the flesh. You know that I think it's insulting sometimes to people who are non-Christians. It's insulting sometimes to hear the crazy claims that the Gospel makes. Eternity apart from God. Punishment of sin. When you put the claims of Christianity right up alongside the apathy that we often display in our speaking of the Gospel, I think it can be downright offensive to those who need it the most. The sense, right, in which our speaking, our being a faithful witness must be accompanied by a pleading and urging. This does not mean in every single conversation you need to be a frantic, panicked crazy religious lunatic. It does not mean you sit down for breakfast and someone says, aren't these grits great? And you say to yourself, and you say to them out loud, you won't enjoy them in hell. Right? It, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you have to bring everything directly there. But it does mean that in your praying and in your thinking and in your, in your desire for relationship with them, that over the course of time that you are connected to them, you say, God, open a door. God, help me to urge them to not mess around with their souls, to not play games with their need for forgiveness. The Gospel is not just an option. It's not an add-on at the car dealership like, hey, if you want a moonroof, it might make things more splendid for you. This is life and death and sin and forgiveness and righteousness and unrighteousness. Eternity is hanging in the balance and there should be an urging of that some point in the relationship. If you've gone 10 years in conversation with someone and never once expressed a concern, to just say lovingly, hey, I just want you to know we've had great conversations. And I love that we can talk about spiritual things and that great, but I just want to press home to you. The claims of the gospel are huge. Man, like sin is a big deal. And I, I want to urge you, don't, don't mess around with this. Don't play games don't put things off. I had a great friend in high school. I'd speak the gospel to him and I'd bring him to church and we'd talk together and he'd, he was always so receptive and he, 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 was, he was fine with going to Bible study and listening and he'd say things to me like this. Yeah, you know, I think when I'm really old, I mean, remember how young we are, like when I'm really old, like maybe my 30s, uh, he's like, you know, I'll, uh, I could probably see when I'm really old, like I'll be a spiritual person probably. Yeah, I think it's helpful and it's great, you know. There were so many times when I would just pour out my soul before God for him. I'd go to him and I'd just say, this is not 
Christianity. Jesus does not come and you do not use Him as a means to an end. You don't live your life in your sins up until about the point where you need a little bit more fulfillment in life and then add Him on as a, as a good add-on when you can afford it. There's an urgency in a call. I hope that makes sense. I don't want to put guilt on you in any sense of the imagination. But I want us to plead and to preach and act like people who understand the stakes. To understand that when we deal with human souls, there is much at stake. I want to give you the only thing that helps me sleep at night in this entire thing. There was a point in my life where I would go to bed at night and I would lay and I would think to myself, I'm so guilty. I feel so bad. God, you probably wanted to save like 10 people today and all I wanted to do was play Tetris, right? Or like, man, I just had to get to, I had to, get to that next level in Super Mario 3. And meanwhile, my friends are dying in their sins, right? I couldn't sleep. I just think like, God, you know, me and you, if you had a better partner, maybe we could do something. And then if things went well, so that was the guilt side of things. And then if things went well, I could go to bed in pride, had a great conversation, see people confess faith, and you go to bed thinking like, I got you, dog. I got got you, right? Jesus could have came and died on the cross. All those other people, they don't care, right? Like, I got you. The pride of me like just uh, being a partner with God in this task. Let me tell you, The only way to sleep well at night is to rest on the end of verse 39. To rest on the end of verse 39. The only way that witness can come with a sense of pleading and urgency of call is to know this. This is why I can say to you, go into the world and plead with men and women to place their sins on Christ. Why? Because God is calling men and women to Himself. When we preach the Word of God, When we speak about the Gospel, when we proclaim Jesus, God calls people to Himself. If it were not for the promise that God calls people to Himself, I would fret or worry or be the most self-righteous person on the planet. I really firmly believe that. Do you believe that as we walk out these doors today, that across Midtown and across Tallahassee and the region and the world, do you believe that when we proclaim the Word of God, That God has set His love on those who would hear. And here's the impetus for pleading and preaching. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's for those who are near and those who are far off. It's for men and for women and Jews and Gentiles and old and young and rich and poor. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when you go in faithfulness, God Sending His Spirit. God calling. God initiating. God drawing. God cutting hearts by His Word. That is the confidence we have to be faithful witnesses. The end of chapter 2 reveals what it looks like, and I think witness is essentially this. To be a witness of the Gospel is to make a biblical call to Jesus Christ in all that we do and all that we say. Let me pray for you. God, thank You for Your Word. It is life to us. It is our only hope. I pray that You'd help us. Help us, God, to be more concerned about what You've said than our own.